Amen. Praise the Lord for that time of worship. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you turn to Luke chapter 10, we're going to be beginning in verse 17 and uh, reading some of the account that we find there in that passage. I'm going to be talking about elements of true salvation. Not all the elements of true salvation, but the ones that arise out of our text from our study of Luke. And we have been following Luke through the course of the summer, and this is the last message for now from the Gospel of Luke. We'll be turning to the book of Exodus beginning next week and beginning a study that emphasizes God's deliverance. So you'll want to be here for the beginning of our study there and all the way through the book of Exodus. This morning, I want to ask ask us this question, and I hope that each one of us that are here this morning will take this question to heart. And the question is this, how do I know that I am saved? How do I know that I am saved? And we're going to be talking about salvation in this message. Now, one of the overarching purposes of Luke is to discuss this idea or this concept of salvation or to talk about salvation. After all, as we have read a number of times, Jesus came to, uh, to uh, comfort those who mourn and to deliver those who are captive and to uh, uh, help the brokenhearted and so on and so forth. This is why Jesus has come and this is the purpose for which Luke talks about the life of Jesus. And so we're going to focus on this idea of salvation. Now, in this section of Luke, the things that happen or the things that take place are just really presented in rapid-fire succession. One thing after another, after another, after another. So we talked about how Jesus fed the the 5,000. This is just at the beginning of chapter 9, and here we are in chapter 10. But look at all the things that happen in these short few verses. Jesus feeds the 5,000. He, uh, we then have Peter's confession. Jesus laid out the cost of discipleship, and we studied that after Peter's confession. And basically, we saw in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, how Jesus says that to follow him, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Jesus, after that, is transfigured in front of some of the disciples. Moses and Elijah appear to him on the mount, and uh, they have this this, uh, declaration. This declaration is made about Jesus the Son and how he should be heard. Jesus then delivers a demon-possessed boy. Jesus prophesies about his death. He tells his disciples that he is going to die. And this is something that's difficult for them to comprehend, as we'll see in a moment. The disciples then turn around and argue who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus affirms that he has come to save people, not to destroy people. Jesus again lays out the cost of discipleship at the end or towards the end of Luke chapter 9. And then as we come to Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out 70 disciples. Now you remember he sent out the 12 earlier, but now he sends out 70 of his disciples to go out and to proclaim the message and to heal the sick and to deliver from demons. And so as we consider these elements of salvation, these elements of salvation, I want us to talk about one thing here, 
And I have the point up here already, and this is our first point concerning the elements of salvation, and it is this. Acknowledge your ignorance. Acknowledge your ignorance. Now, this doesn't sound so great. Nobody wants to admit that they are ignorant or they somehow deficient in their understanding or knowing of things. None of us like to admit that. However, as we go through these verses, and, and many verses all through Luke, we see that on the part of the disciples, they struggle with understanding the right of things. They also struggle with the right way of doing things. They are just struggling one thing after another, and we see this come out. Let me just point out some of the things that we have seen just in these passages that we have studied recently. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, before he did that, the disciples said, send them away. Do you remember that? Send them away so they can get some food to eat. Jesus didn't want to send the people away, and that's the the whole uh, account there of feeding of the 5,000. When Jesus is transfigured on the mount and Moses and Elijah appear in a glorified form, Peter then says, should I set up a tent for you and Moses and Elijah? Now, you know, granted, I don't know what I would say if I was on the mount and I saw Jesus transfigured and Moses and Elijah appearing, and I guess Peter did the best that uh, he could do and offered to make, you know, little shelters for them. But that's really the point. He did not know what to say. There's an ignorance that he has on this transfiguration appearance that he experienced. After this, um, Jesus casts out a demon from the boy, but the man had brought the boy to the disciples first, and they could not do it, even though they had experienced when they went out with the twelve, even though they had experienced the casting out of demons when they went out as 12, and even when they went out as 70, they experienced the casting out of demons. There's still this weakness or inability on their part to cast out this demon from the boy, and Jesus actually rebukes them for that. When Jesus prophesies about their death, about his death, the disciples, he tells the disciples, he encourages them specifically, I want you to hear what I'm about to say and take it to heart. And even though he encourages them specifically, they cannot grasp what he means when he prophesies of his death. That that was just not figuring into the equation in their minds. And it says in the account there, they were afraid to ask him to clarify or to explain what he meant. They were afraid to do that. So they did not understand about his death. They were afraid to ask for clarifications. When... uh, when they're going along on another occasion, there was this man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. And apparently he was successful in casting out demons in Jesus' name. But the disciples find out that this man is casting out demons in Jesus' name and that he is not one of the twelve disciples. And they rebuke the man and tell him to stop doing that. Jesus rebukes them for that. And then... And this is kind of a kicker. Uh, The disciples were kind of rough and tough kind of people. Some of them were anyways. The fishermen maybe uh, especially. And so they go into this village of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans do not welcome Jesus like the disciples thought they should have welcomed him. And so James and John, they come up to Jesus and say, Do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? That's a little harsh, isn't it? Just because they didn't want to respond to Jesus. They didn't welcome him. And so this just shows what's going on in their heart. They're they're misguided. They're off. 
They don't quite get everything. They're struggling to understand. There's a certain ignorance about them and inability about them. As they go with Jesus and as they hear and see what Jesus is doing, they are still walking in their ignorance. And this is really an important idea for us to consider because uh, so many people today exhibit some measure of pride or, or uh, just, just kind of a uh, yeah, pride in, well, I know, I know about God and I know some of the things that he thinks is right and, and so on. There, there's this, you know, what we know and think, it just kind of rises to the surface and it clouds our judgment and helps us, well, it causes people not to see clearly the truth about what Jesus is trying to do and what he's trying to say. And so we might hear comments from uh, people, and I'm not talking about people who come to church necessarily, I'm talking about people that are out there at large and we might talk to them they might say, well, you know, I believe in God. And they have some kind of favorable disposition towards God. And, but that's as far as it goes. Um, maybe they might say, well, I grew up in church. Or they, they rely upon giving, you know, money to a charity or whatever. They might say, well, I try to, I try to help people. And I'm not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. Uh, or they might say, well, my mom, she was a strong believer. My grandma, she told me about Jesus. And they might go and talk about somebody else that had a relationship with Jesus and they just kind of bring it or port it to themselves somehow. Um, they, they, again, they might say, well, I believe in God, but there's really no evidence in their lives. You know, they're, they're, they don't go to church. They don't do anything for God. Uh, whenever he's con- they confront, they're confronted with him, they, they, again, they're favorable towards him, but there's nothing else in their life. So there's this idea, this pride, well, I know how it works, and they kind of rest and rely upon works. But that is not good enough. That is not good enough. That is not the heart of what the gospel is. And so we have to ask this question, I would invite you just to ask yourself this. So you die and you go to the gates of heaven, and you're standing at the gates. Now, this is not how it works, but just kind of imagine this as far as, you know, understanding what God is looking for when he allows somebody to come into heaven. So you die and you go before the gates of heaven, and there God greets you, and he asks you this question, why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? Now, being able to answer this or the answer to this question is absolutely critical to making it into heaven. And we cannot stand at the gates before God and say, well, you know, I'm a pretty good person, just not, nobody's perfect. Or I tried to be good and, I, and, you know, I tried to help people. And, you know, none of these things that are based upon who we are and what we know and what we have done are going to warrant God to open heaven and to allow us in. Why should I let you in? Our only response to getting into heaven is a trust and reliance upon what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And when we respond to God, we say something along the lines, because I have trusted Jesus to forgive me of my sins, and I come to you in him. That is the only way to enter into the gates of heaven. It is not on anything about what we think or what we know or or anything that we have done. It is a complete dependence and reliance upon the work of Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. He forgave us of our sins. And it's because we have a personal relationship with him that we are able to enter into heaven. Now, I cannot 
I, I cannot emphasize this enough because anything short of that puts it off of Jesus when he's done and puts it on us. And people have this idea that, well, they'll have a lot of ideas as I went through just a short list. They have a lot of ideas of what it takes to enter into heaven. And none of those will get us there. It is only relying upon the work of Christ on the cross that enables us to enter into heaven. So Jesus sends out the 70. And let's look at Luke chapter 10, beginning on verse 17. And it says this in verse 17. This is, this is after the 70 return. They say, it says this, Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, now notice, even in this response, They're a little bit misguided, and Jesus corrects them here in verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And that's really the critical question there. Is your name written in heaven? Is your name written in heaven? Will you enter into the gates of heaven when you pass from this earth? Now, who would not be excited You go out, you're one of a group of 70, you know, you're going out in pairs and you're going through all of the places there and and, uh, you've come across demon-possessed people and in the name of Jesus, you cast out those, those demons and they actually get cast out. Who would not? That would be pretty exciting stuff, right? Is anybody with me on that? That would be thrilling. And when they come back to Jesus and he asks them how it went, that's what they focus on. And Jesus, as exciting as that would be, Jesus kind of redirects them. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. Because that's the only thing that matters. If they had not cast out a single demon, but had their names written in heaven, they would have been there. The casting out of the demons is not what is critical for their salvation. And so there's this misguided, uh, these, these misguided thoughts that we have that often will take our focus off what is right and true and important and put it on other things. And it is imperative for us when we consider our salvation that we come back and we look to Jesus who shed his, his blood on the cross for our sins, that we look to him and we trust in his work for us. In Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 21, says this, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Now, there's a couple of interesting points in this passage here, and it might startle us, because on the one hand, it says that God hides the truth from everyone who relies on their own ideas. That is startling. It is not just, it is not just bad to think wrongly about things, but it causes God to resist us. To resist people, I should say, and to refrain from 
uh, revealing these things to them. And so we see even towards the end there where Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and to those whom he, he wants to reveal it to him, there is a, a, a resting on what God is doing for salvation. Our salvation comes by what God chooses to do with respect to us. That's God's sovereignty. But on the other hand, there is a part that we play. So if you are wise and intelligent in your own eyes, he will resist sharing the truth with you. But if you are humble, then he will reveal himself to you. And so there's this cooperative uh, effort that I do not understand, but here it is, both in these passages. And we want and we plead and we go to the Father and we ask that He would move in people's hearts. But at the same time, there is a humility that must be uh, displayed on their part before they can receive the truth of the gospel. We must humble ourselves before God. That is a part of the expression of our faith. And so we depend upon him, but there's humility on our part. And so this humility reflects the attitude that, God, I do not understand how all of this works. I I do not have it right. As much as I might know, I I just depend upon you to do it or to reveal it or to show it to me in my heart. That's what humility is all about. It is putting aside our preconceptions of God and it is yielding to whatever God wants to show us as he wills. And so we must have that humility. And ultimately, our ignorance stems because we are sinful. We are sinful. It just comes right down to that. We are sinful. We have not a word to say before God at all. We are sinful. And the only thing that we can do is fall down before him and cry out for his mercy. So put the ignorance aside. Put your pride aside. Leave it at the door. You have nothing to bring before God. There must be an exposing of yourself, a humbling of yourself before him and allow him to do his work in your life. That brings us to our second point. And it is this, have faith in the power of Christ. Have faith in the power of Christ. It says here in this verse, verse, going back to verse 17, the disciples return, they rejoicing that the demons are subject to them. And then Jesus says this, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, this is an expression of Jesus' authority, I believe, because he, he shows his authority. He, uh, they, they return and they say, even the, the demons are subject to us in your name. So it's because of the name of Jesus that the demons uh, listen to them. They had authority because of Jesus' name. Jesus reaffirms his authority in their lives. In verse 22, he says to them, all things have been delivered to me. That's in verse 22. And going back up to verse 19, it says in verse 19 that I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This is the power and the authority of Jesus. And because of the power and the authority of Jesus, it says he saw Satan fall like lightning. Now, I don't know if this falling like lightning had to do with... um, 
Something, maybe the fall of, the, of uh, this angel, this great angel before the, the creation of the world and, you know, Satan became who he was before anybody was here. Or maybe it is a prophetic utterance concerning what's going to happen or what happened to the devil once Jesus died and rose again in victory at his, his death and resurrection. It might be a reference to that. Or it still might be a future thing when it refers to the culmination of all things in the return of Jesus. I don't know where this exactly fits in here, but here is the truth of it. He saw Satan fall like lightning. Boom! Like lightning. Has anybody ever experienced lightning? I've had two experiences with lightning. So the first one was in Florida. It was me and Christina and my dad. Now, how many of you have ever watched Scooby-Doo? You know the mystery machine? Anybody know about the mystery machine? I know you're embarrassed to admit in church that you've watched Scooby-Doo. Anybody? All right, good. There's some of you who are willing. And you know the mystery, mystery machine, that van, that cool-looking van? Um, well, uh, when Christine and I were first married, we lived with my parents, and my dad had a, br- a brown van that was like that, that kind of a van. So they ha- he had that kind of a van. And uh, me and Christina and my dad were walking out of the house, and it was overcast and threatening to rain. We were walking to the van, I see out of the corner of my eye. I'm about, I'm about this far from the, you know, the rearview mirror. And everything back then, the cars were made out of metal, not plastic like they are today, right? <laughs> so there's this rearview mirror, and it's about this far. And I'm going to open the door, and I see out of the corner of my eye, lightning. just, And it stopped about this far above the rearview mirror. No sound, nothing, just that fast. It was there and it was gone. And I turned to Christina's side. I don't know if my dad saw it. He was out there with us going to the van, but I don't know exactly where he was standing. But Christina was standing next to me and she saw it too. And it was just, that that was the closest I've ever come to lightning. Just this far above the rearview mirror there sticking out. Just came and went just that fast. The other experience with lightning was during VBS here at the church. And uh, I was coming from the parsonage, and I turned onto the sidewalk that goes in front of the fellowship room, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm like directly from right here. I'm directly over there on the sidewalk. And it was threatening to rain, and there was lightning and thunder. And boom, a bolt of lightning hit the top of our steeple. Oh my goodness, now that was a boom and an explosion and I'm like, ah, you know, kind of reaction there. I was terrified. And there were people who were, was, was anybody, did anybody happen to be in the building at that point? I think Christina was, but no, it was a VBS night. It was a VBS night. There was another time, I don't know about that time. These are my experiences. Maybe Tom was here and there were several people who were getting ready for VBS and they were in here and I was out there. I saw the lightning hit that thing, and I felt it and heard it. Kaboom! I got inside as quickly as I could. But nobody in here even knew what had happened, and it blew out our speakers and the sound equipment. It just kind of went, went through the whole building. And, but thankfully, nothing was, uh, nobody was hurt. But uh, that's how the fall of Satan is, like lightning. Boom! It's not Satan falling from heaven far above. Oh no, how did this happen to me? Where did I go wrong? You know, as he falls down this endless cavern. It's not like that. It's a body slam, smash. And the next thing he knows, he's on the ground. What happened to me? That's how he falls. That's the power of Christ. 
Jesus is no wimp. Even while he lived in a, hum, a humble form, even in his first coming, Satan did his best to make him fall on several occasions and could not do it. And so we think about Satan oftentimes and we think that he's this uh, big, scary dragon. And to us, without Jesus, that is how he is. But before the Lord God Almighty, he is a sniveling golem. That's the devil. He has no power or authority at all. And so we must rely upon the power of Christ. It says in Hebrews, this is a great verse here. I, I want to go to the book of Hebrews at some point. Maybe after Exodus, we'll turn to the book of Hebrews. And I wanted to read this long portion here in Hebrews chapter 2. Of, um, one of the verses says this, in verse 14 it says this, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's us, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, that's through Jesus' death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so it's like the devil had us all in the grips of his hands of death, all of us, and Jesus went by dying into death and opened it up for us, causing us to have the opportunity to escape and to be delivered. That is the power of Christ. He has destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And so it behooves us to put our faith in Christ. After all, I mean, who am I? And what do I have to offer? Absolutely nothing. But what does he have? Everything. It is all his. It is all in his hands. Let us stop relying upon ourselves and let us put our faith in what God has done on our behalf. When uh, Colin preached from the Gospel of Luke, he encouraged us to have faith in God, have faith in the sovereign work of God and, and in the mighty hand of God and the provision of God, help to have faith in Him who did what He did on our behalf. And there's this great verse here in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, which says, and this is pretty powerful, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? How great is that? How great the work he has done for us. He opens his arms to receive us when we come to him in Jesus' name. So let us put our pride aside. Let us put our ignorance aside. Let us have faith in the Lord who has delivered us from our sins and from death. And that brings us to our last passage here, and I want to read Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. And this is, the emphasis here is on loving God. So in verse 25 it says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's the question right there. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. Do this and you will live. That was the question. How shall I inherit eternal life? Do this 
and you will live. And then he asks, wanting to justify himself, he says, well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus goes into this parable of the, the Samaritan, the, the good Samaritan, the, the one who helped the man who had beat up. So here's the question then that comes to us in our endeavor to attain to eternal life or salvation. What does it mean to love God and to love our neighbor? What does that mean? Now, we might be tempted to say that loving God and loving my neighbor is just, you know, some kind of a, a positive outlook towards them. You know, we don't hate them in our heart and we just kind of positive and think positive thoughts about the people that are around us and we think kindly and we think affectionately of the people that are around us. And that's important. I mean, there's no question about that. But when Jesus talked about what it means to love your neighbor, he, just, he didn't talk about the Good Samaritan as just kind of feeling sorry for the man who was beat up. He said, he said that the, the Good Samaritan was good and loved his neighbor because he stopped and he took him and he did what he could to alleviate his suffering. He put him on his donkey. He took him into town. He paid for his hotel. He paid for his healing for as long as it was going to take place. He took care of all of that. The Samaritan bore the burden of healing the man who had been beat up. In other words, loving your neighbor involves a serious amount of action on our part. It is not just good thoughts or thinking good thoughts about God. It is loving him with all your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. And that last one is our strength. That means we ought to do what we can in this life with our strength. With all of our strength that we happen to have at this moment. Use it to show that you love God. With your mind, yes. Think about God. Think about rightly. Think about Him rightly. Adjust your thoughts based on what you come across in the Word. It is what is going on in your heart, your passion and your emotions. Yes, think positively about other people. Yes, that's important. Take it all together, though, with your soul, your whole being. And really, this is kind of the heart of it all. Just take all that you are and show and demonstrate your love for God. It is more than just a kind thought or a warm disposition towards God and towards those that are around you. In other words, humbly serve God and your neighbor. Love, loving God, shows itself in action. After all, that's what John 3.16 says, right? God is the perfect example of this to us. For God so loved the world that he acted. He sent his Son to die on the cross. And there's nothing less that is expected of us than to give ourselves to Him. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Him. And if you remember, that means you give up, you're giving up your life to follow after Jesus. This is what it means to be saved. So do you want salvation? And I, and I dare say there are some of you here that may not be saved this morning. And I implore you and I, I plead with you that you would take this to heart and that you would experience the salvation that comes only from God. Recognize your ignorance. 
Recognize your sin. Acknowledge the necessity of the presence and the power and the authority of Christ in your life, that He is your only hope. And then love Him and your neighbor with all that you have left, with every breath that is still in you for as long as He gives you breath, do what you can to serve Him. That's salvation. So as we come to our end here, if you are not saved, this is the time to get saved. This is the time. This is the moment. Do not delay any longer. Romans 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's Romans 10 9. And then there's a certain assurance that we have that we belong to him. When we ask Christ to come into our life and we, when we begin this new life with Him, He gives us His Spirit to live within our hearts. And His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we, in fact, belong to Him. And so oftentimes, when we struggle with a doubt or an uncertainty of whether or not we are saved, well, it might be because we're not. It might be because there is sin in our lives. Whatever the case is, He offers forgiveness. And if we ask him for forgiveness, he will bring forgiveness. If we ask him for a relationship, a personal relationship with him, he will give it to us. He will not turn anybody away. So humble yourself before him. Trust in his power and authority and love him with all of your life. Let's stand up as we sing our final song. If you're here this morning...